message number two, although Scott really did me a favour last week as well. Um, We'll touch that in a moment. But last time we looked at 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 23, building fireproof, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And the story here, of course, is David and Goliath is the way we know the story, but there's a lot more to it than that. And uh, in that, we read this verse, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 13. Now, you're not going to be able to read all of the slides I've got up. They're really there as place markers, so it's good to have your Bibles open if you've got them with you or on your phone or tablet. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 13. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Now, as we come to this, I want you to know a key part of this story, and we're only going to get to verse 30 today. Next week, you'll have to come back for the story you know so well. But a key part of that, that this is a test, and you'll see it. Uh, where I, I'll, I'll make it clear to you where that is. But after hearing that message on 1 Corinthians 3, Heather said to me on that Sunday, but you didn't tell us any application. Give us an example of how to build with gold, silver or precious stones. Well, that night, well, that got me thinking, and that night in the course we were doing with Dr. John Barnett on the land of the Bible, uh, he took us to the Elah Valley and a famous and familiar story that most have heard of. Um, and even secular people are somewhat familiar with the story of David and Goliath. And I want to suggest to you that this is an example of the gold standard of building a life which is fireproof. It's also a clear contrast with the other side of building with wood, hay and straw or stubble. Last week, Scott also gave us another example of building with gold, silver and precious stones in the account of Daniel's three young Jewish friends, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. You don't know those names, do you, so well? Because you know the story as it's been told and it's Shadrach, Meshach and it's not Abednego, it's Abednego because it's hyphenated. <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's incidental. Uh, they're, they're Babylonian names, but they're, they're Jewish names. Their believing names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were literally fireproof as they walked in the fire with their Lord and Saviour, in whom they had declared their trust, loyalty, and worship. And they would not bow down to another. Today we turn to the book uh, uh, of Samuel and John MacArthur notes that the majority of the action recorded in 1 and 2 Samuel took place in and around the central highlands in the land of Israel. The nation of Israel was largely concentrated in an area that ran about 90 miles from the hill country of Ephraim in the north to the hill country of Judah in the south. 
between 15 to 35 miles east to west. It wasn't very big then, it's not very big now, but powerfully important in God's story of salvation. This central spine around Bethlehem and, uh, and Jerusalem ranges in height from 1,500 to 3,000 feet above sea level. And the major cities of First and Second Samuel are to be found in these central highlands. One pastor, Nick Cleveley, uh, points out very wisely, the account of David and Goliath is one of the best-known stories in the Bible. But what is it really all about? Is it simply a story of the underdog, of the little boy who can beat a giant and therefore we can face our giants? He goes on to say it this way. Uh, Some think that it is merely a rags-to-riches story about David the shepherd who becomes king and so we should all reach for our dreams. (laughs) Others have applied it to facing the giants in your life or standing up to bullies. And you've probably heard many a sermon on facing the giants. Everywhere I looked for for background information, it was about facing the giants in your life. It's not that misses the point. The five stones of David that he took into battle, he says, are one of the most abused portions of Scripture made to represent any number of things. They come up with all sorts of allegorical, spiritualized meanings. And that's not what they're there for. This chapter is here to unpack a big question that was raised in chapter 16. Saul, back in chapter 15 really, Saul was set aside for a man whose heart the Lord had seen and chosen. The people wanted a king. And so they chose the most impressive, tall, the tallest and most powerful king, uh, uh, man that they could think of. And he starts out like that, but very quickly reveals his heart. And uh, David, God puts on display for us in this chapter David's heart. David is a man who believes in God and is so is zealous for his glory and trusts that God will act to fulfill his promises to Israel. David is a man who walks as if God is real. Certainly there will be things to imitate as we look at faith in action, but it is David's heart after God's own heart is being put on display. Here, In this passage, this first section of chapter 17, nearly half of the verses is where the contrast between the two ways of building begins. The story starts at a standoff between King Saul and the Israelite army, paralyzed by fear at the threat and intimidation of the Philistine army and its giant representative, Goliath. We're going to look at it in two parts. This week we're looking at how Israel was paralysed by fear. Saul and the rest of the Israelite army. Next time we will look at conquering by faith. You know the story, but again there are things that are so often misemphasized. Ray Fowler suggests that this first section is really the story of Saul and Goliath. But David does come in after verse 12. But the focal point is looking at what's going on in the scene before David arrives. 
Saul is the king, but he has disobeyed God and God has rejected his kingship back in chapter 15. God instructed Samuel to anoint David and Samuel has done that, albeit secretly. Saul doesn't know anything about the anointing at this stage. The Spirit of the Lord then came mightily on, on David mightily in chapter 16, verse 13. And, and we know the story that David is a musician. There's a, there's a warrior side to David and there's a, an artist side to David. He's a, a, a musician and a writer of psalms and or songs uh, for the people of Israel. Psalms that are, are still mightily moving for us today. And he played the lyre for Saul to calm Saul's moods. And it says that Saul loved him greatly, although he came to resent him <laughs> as we progress through the book. Richard Donovan notes the chapter opens as Israel and the Philistines are facing off in battle. Now this is not the first time and it will not be the last. The Philistines were a constant threat to Israel they had dealings with Abram, Isaac, Moses, the judges, and now Saul and David. So Israel's facing a fearsome foe in verses 1 to 11. Uh, for the first 11 verses of this chapter, David is absent. That's why we said it's Saul, it's Saul and Goliath, not David and Goliath here. He's absent from the plot, and Saul and Israel face an ugly yet impressive foe. Israel was surrounded by enemies. So a key thought here is that they needed the Lord. But they forgot him. And it's not the first time that the Israelites have been paralyzed by fear. I just want to take you back briefly to give you a picture of what's really going on here. In Numbers 13, verse 2, God tells Moses to send out a leader of each of the 12 tribes of Israel to go and spy out the land that he, he was setting apart for them. And they spend 40 days. By the way, take note, 40 days, 40 days, 40 days. It appears throughout Scripture. And it's not a source of magic if you fast for 40 days, if you pray for 40 days. Actually, what it is, is a test. Every time you see 40 days mentioned, where was Jesus in the wilderness 40 days without food? It was a test. Not a test of Jesus. It was a test demonstrating to Satan who Jesus really was. He couldn't be bought. And so they go into the land for 40 days. Now that's something, think about it, if interesting for a sec. They're in the land gathering supplies, gathering to make a report. And they're not harmed. But look at their report. It, 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 10 out of the 12 say this, it certainly does flow with milk and honey and this is its fruit because they'd been gathering and they brought it back to show. We show and tell time. But there's a but. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there, giants. And verse 31 says, But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which had been spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. 
but they lasted 40 days. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. Verse 33 says, There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim in, in brackets, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. <sighs> Terrifying. They're crippled by fear. Only Joshua and Caleb say, say differently. Back in verse 30, it says, Then Caleb, um, then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. Settle your hearts down. Get it in perspective. And said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But what does any good democracy do? <laughs> it listens to the will of the majority, and God has to judge them and says, none of this generation will go into the land except for Joshua and Caleb. Why? Because they trusted that God would give them the victory needed to accomplish his purpose. As leaders of their tribes, of the tribes of Judah and Ephraim, they represented God and saw it from God's perspective. They could face giants and challenges in the land because they did not go alone, nor even did they go on their own authority. It isn't about us, by the way. You, you know, so often, if you only have enough faith in yourself, preachers preach this. Wait a minute, it's not faith in yourself. It's trust in God. Even when, when your flesh fails and fears. And so God says as they go into Joshua, uh, taking over the command from Moses, Have I not commanded you? Be, this is a great Sunday school memory verse, be strong and courageous. But then sometimes we face the circumstances life and our knees go to jelly and we begin to melt. And he says, do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. By the way, anytime you're facing trouble, just remember who goes with you. You are not alone, even if all other friends and believers abandon you. You are not alone. Okay, because you see the issue here is that this is not just a story of armies. It's not just a, 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 a fantastic story of, of the underdog. The reality is that what's going on here is still going on today. It is a spiritual battle. It's not just a story about a young man fighting a much larger enemy. It depicts the conflict of the ages. It's a story about the battle that has been raging ever since Satan rebelled against God. The confrontation between good and evil, between God and his enemy. As John Barnett points out there, uh, the Philistines were Greek invaders. They come from southern Macedonia, southern of the area of Greece before the time of Alexander the Great. Uh, they are invaders, uh, sea people who, who invaded that area uh, of the coast and who were highly advanced in culture, business, trade, industry, military gear, fine arts and dark paganism. They worshipped Dagon, uh, Dagon, a statue. 
a dead image. But they were caught up into occultic practices with it. As Ray Fowler notes, the Israelites were in a battle with a powerful foe and you also are in a battle, not against people, but a spiritual battle. We're reminded in Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Remember that. But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. But the important thing to remember here is the story is not just about David and Goliath. Oh, you know, that's how you know it, right? But what's behind the scenes? You see, the unseen battle was God plus David and therefore representing Israel as God's people versus Satan and Goliath represented by the Philistines. Don't forget that. If you miss that, the story just becomes an issue of humanity. But it's so much bigger, it's spiritual warfare. And the question is, who do I represent? God or myself? And when you get it right, David versus Goliath reminds us that you plus God make a majority. Who's, what is David doing in this story? He's standing alone. He's mocked by his own people. He, he's mocked by King Saul. He's, he's, he's uh, spat at by his brother Eliab, as we're going to look at a little bit later on. He's standing alone, but you plus God make a majority. Provided you're fighting, as Ray Fowler pointed at one point, uh, provided you're fighting God's battles, <laughs> not battles of your own making. And so we come to verses 1 to 3, and I don't expect you to read it there. If you want to refer back, you can see it over in your notes, or just mark against it. The Ebar Valley uh, is a triangle-shaped flat valley located on the western edge of the Judean low hills, which are known as the Shephelah. And Bethlehem is about 14 miles away. And Elah is named after a pistachia, no, not the terebinth tree, which features a lot in the Old Testament. Uh, its proper name is Pistachia terebinthus. Uh, you might notice uh, uh, the name sounds a bit like a pistachio, doesn't it? Well, it's related to the pistachio. It does have a, a nut. Uh, but it's also known as the turpentine tree. Apparently it's a sweet-flavoured nut that uh, is like a sweet olive, but they use it to make turpentine. Don't quite get the sweet idea out of turps, do you? But anyway, it's a feature of this valley, and it, they're still there today. There are still terribly trees there. It's also been known as ter uh, Pistacia palestina um, because... Palestine was only given that name after the Romans destroyed the Jews and referred to, took it the, uh, the, uh, the name of the uh, Philistines. Uh, it's where Palestina comes from. They come, and it mentions Azekar and Soko. Azekar was the high ground, and the Philistines wanted to capture it from Israel. It was part of their progression up the valley towards Israel. And if you look at the history, I think if we go back to that map, 
there's about five valleys and they tended to come up in their wars with Israel through there. Here, God's chosen people, backed by the almighty creator and most high God, faced off with the devil and another group of his children. That's the perspective we need to get here. The idol-worshipping Philistines. As Bruce Hurt notes, Saul had an opportunity to annihilate the Philistines in the Battle of Michmash, but made a foolish vow requiring his soldiers to fast all day until they had won the victory. And the result was they were famished and weakened and unable to obliterate the fleeing Philistines. Now here in this battle, they camped on either side of the Elah Valley, about 14, 15 miles west of Bethlehem, and they, the Philistines were apparently on the hill to the south of the, the valley, overlooking from the heights of Azekar, and the Israelites were on the hill to the north. Israel's ground would never have been footing for Philistine armies if Israel had been faithful to their God. The Philistines, it is probable, as suggested, had heard that Samuel had fallen out with Saul and forsaken him. You know, there are enemies around Israel today watching Israel squabbling over itself inside, trying to decide whether it's time to strike while they are weakened or whether to just let them destroy themselves. If you read any of the news headlines at the moment, especially coming out of Israel, that's the debate going on. Israel is at another dangerous place and they need to seek the Lord, not simply their own strength. The reality is they face a stronger enemy. The Israelite and Philistine armies are at a stalemate. Neither army is moving from its position. Sounds like another war that we know at the moment, <laughs> although progress is being made there to a degree, but it's slow. The Israelites are encamped across the hills on the north side of the valley to prevent the Philistines from moving up the valley further into Israelite territory. And the Philistines are encamped across the hills on the south side of the valley. Only a dry creek bread separates the two armies, and you can go there today. And it tells us in verses 4 to 7, twice a day the boredom is broken by a huge man of war. And as it says there, uh, the average so height of a soldier was, uh, Israeli soldiers from, taken from bone measurements and things was about 5 foot 5 to 5 foot 8 inches. And there are various measurements given from 9 to 11 feet, depending on the measurement, the Old Testament measurement there. But he's twice the size nearly and he is stocky you know I have two nephews um, uh, they were bikies and they're now fortunately out of it uh, I know it was a great burden for my brother uh, but they're six foot seven and six foot eight and that's how tall they were at 14 a six seven and six nine sorry and I, and I have to say, I, I met one of them again at my father's funeral. The other was in jail because of his time there with the other. And man, they are imposingly big. <laughs> I'm six foot, but they are stocky. And you can imagine this, that this is what Goliath was like. And he has to be if you look at the list of his weapons and stuff that he carried. Um, 
Uh, he's a huge man of war, representing, willing to stand out in front and take on any uh, a suggestion from the other side. Um, there might be a modern comparison. <laughs> now I'm, or I was, around six feet, and this guy in the died back in the 1940s, I think. They don't live long when they're that large. Uh, the heart tends to give out um, in the end, but towering giant. Fortunately, he's dressed in suits, not in war, war gear. <laughs> so that's why I'm smiling. <laughs> um, <clears throat> he's not only tall, but strong. No Israelite could see himself beating this monster. Just look at the armor he wears, uh, and you don't really get a picture of it there, but... Uh, and the weapons he carries. You see, you see, one of the things going on here is the Philistines were a sophisticated uh, society. They had the latest of everything, and they had the latest weaponry. And the Israelites were just an agrarian people. They were sheep herders. There were only two swords in the whole Israelite army, David, Saul and Jonathan's. And you can verify that if you search back through the scripture in 1 Samuel 13. So what are the rest of the guys carrying? Clubs and sticks? Shepherds, crooks? You start to get a little bit of the picture of how inferior they felt against this imposing army with this giant of a representative that comes out and taunts them from the other side every day. His, uh, he's carrying a sword, a javelin, an iron-tipped spear, and a suit of armour that weighed anywhere from 125 to 150 pounds. At that rate, it's about 100 kilos. Um, his state-of-the-art weapons were massive, and he had protection on his legs, greaves, metal shields over his legs. But guess what he didn't have? He didn't have the Lord on his side, okay? Uh, so you can get a distorted picture. Uh, Ray Fowler notes that Goliath also had a shield bearer who went in front of him, and this shield bearer would have carried a full-length body shield to protect Goliath from any arrow shot his way. So this huge, imposing giant of a man comes out of the Philistine camps, and he is bigger and stronger than anyone in the Israelite camp. He is a fearsome foe, but remember something. He's not just opposing the Israel, Israelite army. He's opposing God. They seem to have forgotten this, but yeah. he opposes God and God's people. He taunts the Israelites. Why do you come out to draw up in battle, Ray? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I, pray against, if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. You see, Goliath not only issues the challenge, he's taunting the people. Am I, am I not a Philistine and you are just servants of Saul? In other words, you don't stand a chance. Goliath says, I defy the ranks of Israel. And that word defy is a term of scorn and contempt. Now, by the way, who is best suited to fight Goliath from a physical standpoint of all the Israelites? It is Saul. 
When Saul was chosen as a king, Saul was described as head and shoulders above everyone else in 1 Samuel 10.23. Saul is the biggest and strongest in Israel. He's not as big and strong as Goliath. But with faith in God, Saul could have defeated him. It was the opportunity of a lifetime. The story could have been Saul and Goliath, not David and Goliath. Except that God already saw what was in Saul's heart. But look at verse 11. <clears throat> Someone has titled this Goliath phobia. Saul doubted, and you see, Saul doubted God's power. He forgot about the Lord's awesome omnipotence. He began to think that mere mortals, the Philistines, were greater than the ancient of days. So he and the Israelite army were dismayed and greatly afraid. The Israelites were in a battle and we also are in a battle, a spiritual battle. Satan opposes God and God's people, but the enemy, the enemy is far stronger than you, but he's not stronger than you plus God. Okay. In Revelation 12, 17, this battle goes right through to the the, right through into the great tribulation and Israel will still be fighting it. It says, so the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The enemy opposes God and God's people and you have a fearsome foe and you do need to be careful that you don't give in to fear like Saul and the Israelites did. You see, the problem with fear is that it will hold you back and intimidate you into inaction. And so what we find is in verses 12 to 16 is that they were going through 40 days. This has been going on. Okay, 40 days. What did I say it was again? Not a magic number. It's a time of testing. Goliath was a test. That's why it was 40 days. David happens to come at the end of the 40 days. Okay. As Paul Apple notes, fear of, this is fear of failure. But isn't it a greater fear, failure not to have fought? What did, what did uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, to use their terms used last week that, that Scott spoke about? God will deliver us, but if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow our knee. <laughs> we're trusting God. He can take us through the fire. He can take us through the flames. That's building fireproof. And so into the scene comes David. And the scene shifts now from battlefield to Bethlehem. <clears throat> and it tells us that David has been going back and forth to Saul. He had ministered to Saul in chapter 16 and he was probably sent home when the Israelites went off to war because you had to be at least 20 years old to be eligible for military duty in Israel. It's recorded in Numbers 1-3. And David's three oldest brothers are off fighting with Saul, and David is home in Bethlehem tending the sheep, but he's also coming and serving, if you read the verse, he's also coming and serving Saul, as well as looking after his brothers. And it says in verse 14, now the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. David's the pesky little brother, a bit like Joseph, 
although there was perhaps a bit more grounds for irritation there. But they followed Saul, it says. Where did they follow him? Yeah, to the battlefield, but what, where did it lead them? Into fear. They were following the leader. While David faithfully attends to his responsibilities. Don't, don't miss that, and especially when you look at the accusation of Eliab. He's accusing of being a sticky, sticky, you know, um, sticky beak, wanting to just spot the action. But that's not what he's doing. They, though, on the other hand, and you'll see in verses 12 to 16, and I'll point it out to you in a minute, were just going through the motions. Bethlehem's about 14 miles away. David lived there as a young boy, humbly caring for a small flock and willingly acting as a delivery boy for his brothers. Ralph Wilson notes, he goes back and forth to make sure his brothers have food. The Israelite army is provisioned by family members supporting their own sons. David also relays news of his brothers to Jesse, their father. But notice verse 19. I've got it highlighted in yellow there. You might just... No, you can't really read it. Anyway, <clears throat> he gets there. Um, ah, okay. And it says, uh, 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 his father says, they are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Some fight, huh? Yeah, they're having a great time fighting. They're being victorious. No, they're standing intimidated and afraid on the sidelines. They sound the battle cry in, in, in the verses before. They draw up their lines facing each other, but nobody's doing any fighting. It's all theatre. It's all just a show. And this one writer says they might just as well go home. You see, when we give in, and Ray Fowler notes this, when we give in to fear in the Christian life, we can also end up just going through the motions. When we give in to fear, we stop moving forward in our Christian life. We stop taking risks for God. We still go to church. We sing the songs. We bow our heads during prayer. We listen to the sermon, but somehow we've forgotten that it's all real. We're just going through the motions. You are part of a spiritual battle that is going on all around you. Your life and your prayers and your faith and your service matter. What you do today has eternal impact. But of course... Um, in verses 20 to 22, uh, we go on to that, and then verse 23, they, you find them fleeing the fight. God has perfect timing. David arrived in time to hear Goliath, but he watches in amazement as all the Israelites turn and run away from Goliath. They're not only not moving forward, they're not even standing their ground. They're going backwards. They flee just at the size of the giant, fleeing because of fear. Fortunately, David has a different heart and he sees the issue. Perspective really does matter. David is appalled when Goliath rants and asks some of the soldiers to tell him what's going on. David saw things differently than those around him. 
He had learned and applied the lessons of 1 Samuel 16, 7, where the Lord said, do not consider his appearance or height. David had learned to see things from God's perspective. It was the heart that mattered, and he was neither impressed nor intimidated by Goliath, no matter how big Goliath was. David knew that God is bigger. David saw things from the Lord's perspective, but the men of Israel saw things only from man's perspective by the way have you ever been tempted to succumb to that fear of man you see David was zealous for God's honour John Barnett notes only David saw the real issue not Saul David was offended by God being dishonoured and if I am, he says, this is Dr. Barnett, if I am not offended when God is dishonoured, then I am in some way dishonouring him. That's what Saul and the army were doing. They were dishonouring the God who they claimed to believe in. David understood that Goliath wasn't simply defying the Israelites, He was defying God. There's the yellow that I was referring to. That's why David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? In David's eyes, Goliath wasn't an invincible champion. He was just an uncircumcised Philistine. Uncircumcised means he was not in a covenant relationship with the one true God. Goliath and the Philistines served Dagon, a dead God, a false God, a no God, represented by statues and idols. But David and Israel, who did they serve? The true and living God. And we need to remember that. And then we find him refusing discouragement. (laughs) David was disliked by brothers. And one writer has this in brackets, watch out, your little unlike brother may someday be king. (laughs) But it reflects on the character of his brothers, especially Eliab. Unwise, sometimes you will get unwise, unbelieving counsel from the very ones that should be encouraging us. You know, I've shared this before, but I'll share it again here because I've experienced that. When we made the decision to leave a secure job, I was an agricultural economist in the Department of Agriculture. I was being mentored uh, by my chief regional officer who uh, was very interested in my career development. And I was about to do a master's degree in uh, economics in water resource management, which is today still a very important field. But I sensed the call had been there for a long time to go to train for ministry. And, you know, I went to share it with the folk in the church. And do you know what their counsel was? No, they weren't a strong Bible teaching church at that point, uh, the, the country church we're in. Oh, take a year off and see how it works out. In other words, hedge your bets. When I told my non-Christian bosses, I had a district office, I was based in a district office, plus I had my mentor, the chief, uh, chief regional officer, they both said, and they were, not, they, were, they, were, they were not believers, but they both said, we can see that's right for you. 
from one family side of our family connections, we got anger. Well, from one person within one side of our family, we got anger that I was leaving a good and secure job. From the other side, my father, who's a lay preacher in the Methodist Church, or Uniting Church, as it later became, said to me, I'm not surprised. Of all the family, I sense that you would be called to the, either to the ministry or the mission field, but it w I never said it because it had to be between you and the Lord. It's a matter of where we're looking. David's brother Eliab was not looking in the right place. As David Guzik notes, he says, we might have thought that David's visit would please Eliab, especially considering all the things he brought from home. But David's words angered Eliab, and there were many reasons why. First, he was angry because he felt David was an insignificant, worthless person who had no right to speak up, especially with such bold words. Why did you come down here? And whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? But the text tells us he had arranged for somebody else to be looking after the sheep while he was away. Second, he was angry because he felt he knew David's motivation. I know your pride and the insolence of your heart. But he didn't really know David's heart. And sometimes within families, we don't know each other quite as well. We go by presuppositions and things we've assumed along the way. I've certainly experienced it. And then sometimes people get a surprise. <laughs> My brother came here one Sunday when I was singing, uh, when I was doing a solo years ago, too tired for it now, but, and he says, I didn't know you could sing. And I thought, where were you all my life? <laughs> I was just a little bothersome kid brother. <laughs> we do have a better relationship than that now to some extent. Third, he was angry because he thought David tried to provoke someone else into fighting Goliath just so he could see a battle. You've come down to see the battle. Of course, Eliab himself was a tall man of good appearance, as we're told in 1 Samuel 16, 7. And he may have felt David was trying to push him into the battle. And finally, he was angry because David was right. When you are dismayed and greatly afraid or dreadfully afraid, the last thing in the world you want is someone telling you to be courageous, especially your little kid brother. <laughs> but David isn't submitting to his brother's attempt to silence him. He may be the youngest, but he isn't afraid of his older brother. So we need to ask, why did David stand alone? Dr. Barnett says, David wanted to honour God with his life. Standing alone for, the, for God is the only life that ultimately lasts forever. And he gives three choices that are revealed by the Psalms that were written from around this time, from his shepherd days. In the springtime of his youth, as he puts it there. First, God became David's peer pressure, not anyone else. Psalm 19, verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. You see, God had set David apart to replace Saul because he understood his heart. Secondly, God, he knew that God could satisfy his longings. The shepherd psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I don't need anything else. 
And third, he hungered for God each day in Psalm 132, verses 7 and 9. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. And let your saints shout for joy. We start to stand alone for God by hungering for the Lord each day. As Jesus says in Matthew 4, 4, he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And we continue to stand alone for God by denying ungodliness. Titus 2.11 to 13 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope. What did I say before Joseph of Arimathea was looking? He was looking for the kingdom, the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Christ Jesus, because that's when you will build with gold. That's when you will build fireproof and be able to go through the waters or through the fires because God is with you. So as we conclude, it comes back to where are you today? Ask the Lord to give you boldness, as you get in preparation for the battle, especially with any negative voice that is close to you. We're going to see how it plays out next week, but I think we've taken in a lot to chew on here. Where is our focus? Where are our eyes? Where is our heart? Are we building like David with gold, silver, precious stones? And I'll give you a bit more on that next week in one of his psalms. Or are we like Saul and the Israelite army who followed him, building with wood, hay and stubble and fleeing in fear? Fear not, for I am with you, says the Lord. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, we pray that you would give us the courage. But first, to have that courage, we must have the heart that David had. And you tell us in Acts 13 that he, David was a man after God's own heart. And that's why God chose him, because it was not about a democracy. It was about a theocracy where, where the king represented God and ruled according to the principles of God. We thank you that uh, unlike the final David, the, the Lord Jesus, when he comes to reign, where there, there is no flaw, we do see David was like us. And he erred at moments, but the reason that he had the heart was that he recognized when it was pointed out that he had done wrong. And so, Father, help us to have our hearts in the right place. Help us to be bold as a lion, courageous, not because we have anything in ourselves that would make us so, but like all human flesh, we would, uh, we would fret and flee in flight, but that we might know 
that we have an anchor of our soul. We have one who is greater than all that opposes us. And Father, we pray that you would help us and teach us to pray through each